This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Stats Canada has released a whole bunch of data about fertility rates. The fertility rate fell to one of its lowest levels in decades in 2020. The pandemic may have been part of that, but recent survey data shows economics are part of it too. 38% of young adults aged 20 to 29 do not think they could afford to have a child in the next three years. There are also people who are consciously choosing to be child-free. These stats caught Jenny Bovard's attention. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm great, Jenny. Thank you for bringing this topic to the table today. Let's start with the data itself. What do you find striking about some of this data? Well, first off, I have to say I feel seen and heard. And really what the data says to me is that priorities are shifting for people in that age range where historically they would be expected to start having children and starting a family in the sense of having children. So another recent study jumped out at me and that one showed that one third of people surveyed said they didn't want to have children ever. So Mm. one in three people, I think that's worrisome for some folks on some level when they read that. But again, I feel like this is an important conversation to have. So I'm so glad that we're talking about it today. When we think about our current economic and cultural climate Canadians are doing this real serious cost-benefit pro-con analysis around this massive life choice. It's no longer just assumed that by a certain age you're going to do certain things and it, that includes having children of your own. Yeah, it, it, it's it's so interesting when you put all those data points together because when you think about the economics of the equation, it it like it really matters. And for those sixty six percent of people who do want to have kids, and perhaps economics are stopping them, the ability to even own an apartment or a house that's big enough to have kids in, like that that is a jarring thing. But I think that the 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 other thing that you've identified there, the notion of being child-free, the choices that people are able and willing to make, strike me as interesting too. And I, and I think that's a conversation worth having between you and I this morning. And we can lay our cards on the table. Where do you land on the notion of being child-free? Well, first, I'm glad that it's you and I and the people enjoying the show having this conversation and asking these questions as opposed to the Uber driver who insists on knowing who's going to take care of me when I'm older. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it it is very uncomfortable at times. But I want to say also that parenting can certainly be a beautiful thing, right? I want to acknowledge that if that's what you choose. But you really said something important to me, and that's the the choice, right? I love kids. I love spending time with my nephews and my niece. I work with kids in my job as a mentor. Dave, I am a stellar babysitter. Hire me. <laughs> I am so much fun and so responsible. But my family unit consists of my husband and I, our senior cat, and our three-year-old lab shepherd mixed dog. It's just us. We have made a conscious decision to be child-free. We are content with that decision that we made long ago. 
there are a lot of reasons why neither of us is interested in having children. We we can't imagine our lives with all of those added responsibilities, budgeting the time, budgeting the money, the thought of childbirth itself, that is still a risky process. Mm. And I don't really know how people do it. I, I give props to people who are parents, but I have no idea. I have no desire to figure out what it's like for myself. And and I just want to say that that's okay too. Parenthood is beautiful, but child-free can be beautiful too. You know, Jenny, but 20 years ago, I I thought I was going to be someone who was going to want to have kids. And as time has gone on, I'm I'm increasingly becoming someone who is probably not going to have kids and is probably making that choice. I do waver from time to time. It's part of the privilege of being a man. I can wait a little bit longer to, to actually make a finalized choice on this front. I have friends who are in their 50s who only started having kids in their 50s. So I, wow. I, I know I know that um, I know that I still have time, but but I'm also getting closer to that point where I I don't think that that being a parent is going to be for me. And if I was going to be vulnerable and lay this on the table, I think my disability does have something to do with it. Um, I know this may upset some people who think that disability should only be ever talked about positively, but there are a couple of realities um, to my situation, which is I can't drive. And not being able to drive uh, when you have a child can put a lot of burden on your partner or it just might be something that is very difficult for you to do. And listen, there are plenty of parents who've raised their kids without being able to drive, but it, it, it becomes a matter of complexity, and it's something that I think about. I also think about the fact that I'm legally blind. Um, it's hard for me to, to keep track. Like, if I brought my kid to a park or a bigger space, I might have trouble actually keeping track of my kid, and, and I think about that. And then there's also just the reality of albinism, right? What, what the disability that you and I share is a condition that's genetic, and I would be passing on my genetics and I'd be passing on, if not albinism explicitly, because there's there's some genetic machinations as to whether or not my child would have albinism, but I would be passing that gene forward. Now, this is me being vulnerable. I'm not trying to disability shame. I'm just trying to talk about it in an honest way and where it lands for me as an individual. How about you? How, how, do, how much does this disability play into your feeling about being child-free? I feel very much the same way around the ability to drive. I got a dog a few years ago. And I, I, again, I'm not trying to make light of this. Uh, it's it's not comparable, really, having a dog and having a child. But for me, getting a dog further solidified the, some of those things for me. I often worry that my dog is missing out on experiences because I don't drive. Like, putting a child into the mix, trying to think of getting all of my daily tasks done with a child on public transportation, that is overwhelming to me. And to, to go back to the positive side of things, I think that, yes, obviously people with all types of disabilities are out here being incredible parents. Oh, I for sure. For time. sure. Yeah. And, and having the lived experience as someone with a disability, with albinism, maybe that is a benefit you know, having that lived experience that we can pass down if our child also has a disability, but it does add complexity and it does affect our daily lives and life is difficult anyway. There are also so many bigger picture things, Dave, that I consider because I think when we have these conversations, some people might look at us as selfish or um, I, that's a strong word, but if we look at the housing crisis and climate change, these are bigger picture things that everyone um, 
not everyone, but that a lot of people are considering these days mm. when they think about having children now. I, I, I think I think you hit the nail on the head right there too, right? That housing crisis and climate change is not just the person individually looking inward and saying, can I do this? It begs the question of, should I do this? Should I have kids? That's right. There are so many things to consider. It's incredibly, it's, it's so complex. And I just, again, the expectation that by a certain age, you're going to have a child. I think that we're we're shifting and priorities are shifting. And I think that that can be a good thing. Do you ever waver? Uh, again, Jenny, I'll, I'll acknowledge my privilege again here that, that I have I have time to waver if I want to. I was at one of my friend's um, kids' birthday parties a couple of weeks ago, and it was a lot of people that I went to CJEP and university with, and I, I just saw them having like these loving families and these loving, touching moments, and they're building community together. And, and, you know, in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, you know, like maybe, maybe I want to be more than just Uncle Dave, like in this moment. Um, so, so I, I feel maybe a little bit of that peer pressure. And then, of course, like the pure Darwinianism of it all, like our purpose in life, since we are microbial bacteria in the sea, was to reproduce. And through plagues and wars and migration and storms and like for, for billions of years, genetic hey, material is 2023. Been... <laughs> it's almost 2024. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But, but you know, like I, I, I do, I think about these things and like I do occasionally waver. And that was my long preamble of asking you a pretty closed ended question. Do you ever waver on your decision? Short answer is no, I don't. I, is, would my husband and I produce adorable offspring? Probably. 100%. Would be, right. Would they be strong headed? Would they probably have asthma? Also very likely. But I, unlike you, I don't have those moments of, yes, the, there's a lovely family over there having, um, uh, you know, having a moment, building memories. I don't, I don't have those feelings of envy in those moments. I do have... You know, I do have, I am really solid in my decision and I too have been fortunate enough to have access to resources and, and information that have helped me, uh, that have made it possible for me to be child-free at the age of 37. So I want to acknowledge that I have some privilege there as well. I have access to certain things, but I take this really, I take this decision very seriously. Um, you know, I I'm fortunate enough to be an adoptee. I was adopted. And in the first month of my life, I spent that first month waiting in a hospital for someone to take responsibility for me. Luckily, I have an incredible family. So I just, I know that for sure that parenting can be very difficult. It can be all consuming and it it simply isn't for everyone. So I, I, I'd like to contribute to the Oprah's of the world in normalizing the child-free option. And sure, there's, you know, you want to carry on your name. Some people really have that within them that they want to carry on their name, but I'm more focused on my career and uh, uh, making fun a priority in my life. Mm. Sure, you can do those things as a parent, but I think I'm looking to leave a legacy, a little crumb of a legacy as opposed to uh as opposed to a last name for example or even my genes nobody nobody wants my genes i don't have good genes. <laughs> uh, only only stretchy fabric genes uh, for me jenny jenny <laughs> the, i i so appreciate the vulnerability that you're showing this morning thank you for opening the door on this conversation and it's one that uh we can have again down the road as well thank you for this thank you dave i really appreciate the time to talk about this that's Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. 
Let's bring in Laura Bain for an entertainment report. Uh, no, no palate cleansing between uh, that and this. But Laura, you've got a really interesting story here. Italian opera singing, traditional Syrian glass blowing, Peruvian ceviche. They're all receiving a special designation this week. What's going on? Yes, that's right. And I really enjoyed that conversation between you and Jenny there. But uh, as you mentioned, these items are all being named as part of intangible cultural heritage by UNESCO. Um, so the committee responsible for this list meets every year, and they're currently meeting in Botswana. Now, the purpose of the list is to bring awareness to the significance of these cultural practices and to help ensure their protection. So you mentioned a few off the top there, Italian opera singing. I think that's a that's a pretty significant one oh, yeah. um, that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, traditional Syrian glass blowing, Peruvian ceviche. But the list is incredibly diverse. Um, midwifery in Colombia, loincloth weaving from the Ivory Coast, the Alpine pasture season in general in Switzerland. Um, so I, I really had a found it very enjoyable going through the list and lots of arts and culture, lots of music and dance. So traditional Polish dance was designated this year. Um, a traditional dance in Palestine that I don't want to mispronounce, D-A-B-K-E-S, I don't, or K-E-H, I don't know if it's Deb-K, and uh, also a poetic and musical art form from Morocco, M-A-L-H-U-N, Malhun. I apologize to anyone out there who's yelling <laughs> at their device. <laughs> um, nothing on there from Canada. Now, I was doing some digging, and Canada, of course, has UNESCO World heritage sites. And I know here in Nova Scotia, we have a, a dark sky zone that's uh, protected by UNESCO, but I'm not sure that that Canada has designated um, mm. culturally significant UNESCO um, items. I'm wondering if there's anything that you would want to put on that list. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do think there are probably some Canadian cultural practices or, 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 or cultural trends that would make up part of the broader tapestry. Because I, th I think what this list gets at, and maybe some of the history of this list, is that culture is a tapestry made up of all these in individual activities that make places and spaces. And by preamble of saying, I, I think about a couple Canadian musical traditions that probably deserve some acknowledgement in and of themselves. And one of them is not far from you, and I would call that sort of the Celtic folk Atlantic Canadian music scene. I, I know that's kind of broad and, and not particularly specific, but I do think there's a very particular sound that comes out of places like Newfoundland and Labrador, that comes out of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island that really is that that Celtic folk scene. And then if I was thinking about something like very particular, indigenous throat singing from Northern Canada mm -hmm. in the Arctic, I, I, I would say like these are these are practices or cultural touchstones that, that are unique to where they're from, but that have a broader appeal across the culture. Oh yeah, absolutely. And those were some that I thought of myself and certainly some of the like folk traditions in Newfoundland, mummering, for example, comes to mind and Cape Breton fiddle music and a yeah. lot of the uh, kind of Acadian and Mi'kmaq culture stuff here. So um, for sure. Um, 
Now, another question I have is whether a UNESCO designation makes you more interested in learning about or exploring a practice or a place. <laughs> For the sake of uh, keeping this short, I would say probably not. I, 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 think, I think what I'm looking for in planning my vacations is uh, affordability, ease of getting there, and uh, can I watch football while I'm there? <laughs> I know I'm being flippant with your super, your super genuine, <laughs> sincere question. <laughs> No, that's fair. I think that it does kind of interest me. But um, yeah, when I'm traveling, it's something that comes up a lot, like whether something's a UNESCO designation. But I would like to see some way where there's attention brought to more of these uh, kind of things on this list that there were, you know, I would say a, a good three quarters of them I'd never heard of. So I'd love to see like a an annual sort of documentary or something like that, where, mm. uh, you know, you could learn more about them. Right on. Hey, Laura, you're so good at digging up these interesting stories. Thank you for this. Have a lovely Thursday. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Dave. You too. That is Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, a couple of Auditor Generals, Provincial Auditor Generals, released reports yesterday that uh, bear a little bit of extra examination. So I'll have those stories for you in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.